0: God does not choose to protect us from that which He can use to perfect us. Um, That is a powerful line from Tara's faith story. I'll say it again. God does not choose to protect us from that which He can use to to perfect us. And and that is a mature perspective when um, bad things happen. And when bad things happen, we struggle. And we ask two very common questions. Oh, Lord, why? And oh, Lord, how long? God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you do this? And God, when is it going to be done? How long does this have to last? And they are questions that try our patience and test our endurance and stretch our limits, and after a while, fatigue sets in, and we begin second-guessing. We begin second-guessing our decisions. We begin second-guessing our very selves. We begin second-guessing our faith, and we begin second-guessing God. And we wonder, are you there, God? Is he there? Was he ever really there? Was Was this really real? We doubt. There, I said it. We doubt. We doubt. And yet that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about doubt. Um, um, and, and allow me to take that quote from Tara's faith story and insert the word doubt. That God does not choose to protect us from doubt when doubt is what he can use to perfect us, mature us. Deepen us. Have you ever considered that God uses doubts? He uses uncertainties that come our way to deepen our dependence on Him. Well, that's what we're going to see today as we look at a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament book of Psalms. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 73 to find... The book of Psalms, just open your Bible up to about the middle, and you'll, you should find the book of Psalms, and Psalm 73, it's on page 485 in your church Bibles, and Psalm 73 speaks of one person's journey with doubt, and I'm going to be reading uh, portions of this psalm Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. I'll tell you who he is in a moment. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Stop there. That's his big idea. That's the main point of Psalm 73. That God is good to those who are pure in heart. And so what the psalm does, what the psalmist does is he tells us about a journey that he took. That led him to that conclusion. But he tells us where he's going at the beginning of his journey. All right? So verse one's the big idea. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, and here's the journey, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. You're not in trouble as others are. You're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Oh, one of the things I love about scripture is the brutal honesty of the authors. I mean this psalm was written by Asaph. Who was Asaph? Asaph uh, lived in the time of King David. And Asaph was uh, was... King David's choir master. Uh, Asaph was King David's minister of worship arts. That's who Asaph was. And he served in the temple or the tabernacle rather. The temple had not yet been built. But he was in charge of worship and music and the choirs. And, And here we learned he has written some of the psalms that we have here. And Psalm 73 was one of them. And Psalm 73 is Asaph's personal struggle with doubt, with doubt, and I just want to answer three questions from this chapter. First, doubt, what is it? How does the Bible define doubt? Secondly, what causes the doubts that we have? When we have doubts, why do we have them? And then thirdly, what does it? God wants us to do with our doubts. When we have our doubts, what do we do with them? What does God want us to do with them? All right? So what is it? Doubt. Why do we have them? Doubt. What does God want us to do with them? Doubt. That's where we're going today. Let's start with question number one. What is it? Here's what it is. Doubt is this. Doubt is the place between belief and unbelief. That's doubt. It's as simple as I can say it. Doubt is the place between belief and unbelief, which is to say that unbelief does not doubt. Faith doubts, you see? So if you didn't have faith, you couldn't doubt. Uh, Doubt is faith that needs more nourishment. Doubt is faith that needs more nutrition. You know how your stomach sometimes growls when you get hungry? Well, when your faith gets hungry, it growls. And that's called doubt. It's called doubt. And so, and so doubt is something that God can use to deepen our faith. Doubt is something that God can use to help us see that, you know, we still have room to grow. Uh, we're, we still need some roots. We still, our faith still needs to mature. Which means if you have questions about God, if you have uncertainties and doubts and struggles about God, it's okay. It's okay. You're you're in good company. You came here today thinking, I have doubts, I'm the only one has doubts. No, let me show you. Really, be honest. How many, I'm gonna raise my hand first. How many of you have ever struggled with a season of doubt? Just be honest, raise your hand. Just keep it up. Okay, now look around, everybody. okay. So, if you're here for the first time, you know, and you're thinking, wow, I'm the only one who doubts, now join us. We're all here. I'll struggle. It's okay. And, and sometimes people are afraid to bring their doubts. Listen, if an author of the Bible can struggle with doubt, anybody can. And, and sometimes we're afraid to bring our doubts about God to church or to the minister to our small groups because we're worried about what people are going to think. Ah, you doubt? You must be a heretic. You know, no, listen, doubt. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. And I want you to see the word picture for doubt here in Psalm 73. It's there in verse 2. Has to do with uncertain footing. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You hearing that? The psalmist says he almost lost his balance. He almost fell. He wavered. His feet weren't firmly planted. You can't stand in two places at once. That's what's going on here. Hesitation and uncertainty. Yes, doubt. The heart of doubt is a divided heart. And that idea of, of being divided, I'm I'm torn, I'm between, a, I'm, I'm between here and here, and I'm, I'm just that idea is repeated throughout the Bible. Uh, for instance, in the New Testament, there are several words for doubt that all speak of this dividedness. For instance, in Matthew 28, verse 17, after the resurrection of Christ, in Matthew 28, 17, the disciples, they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but then the Bible says, but some doubted. But some doubted. And that word, that word means they stood in two places, which is to say they were uncertain. They hesitated. They doubted. And why wouldn't they? They were The last person they expected to see alive was Jesus. They doubted. Uh, in James chapter one verse six, there is a word for doubt, which means to to speak in two ways. So James one six uh, has to do with if we lack wisdom, we should ask, and God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. The wisdom you can count on God giving wisdom when we ask. But when we ask, James says we must believe and not doubt, and that word means to. Speak in two ways. Matthew 28 said to stand in two ways, but James says to speak in two ways, which means you're having a debate with yourself. <laughs> you're having an argument with yourself. You're divided. You're divided. And then, and then further in James chapter 4, verse 8, there's yet another word for doubt, which means to think in two ways. To be double-minded. You want both ways, but you can't have both ways. They're mutually exclusive, and your double-mindedness is causing you to delay. And James says, stop delaying, make a decision, and draw near to God. So so doubt, doubt is not the same as unbelief. But doubt can become unbelief if we don't take it seriously. Uh, someone Someone put it this way, if Christ spent an anguished night in prayer, if he burst out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, then surely we are also permitted to doubt. But we must move on, and here's the quote, for to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is like choosing immobility as a means of transportation. Doubt. Two places, two minds. Have an argument with yourself. Unsure footing. My feet had almost slipped. My steps had nearly stumbled. That's what it is. But why does it happen? Why does it happen? And there's many reasons why. There are several reasons why. Let me mention a few reasons that are not explicitly in this psalm. And then let's get to why Asaph doubted. Why do people doubt? Sometimes we doubt because we have unanswered questions about Christianity. If someone asks us a question and we can't answer the question, that kind of puts us in a a tailspin and we wonder, well, what if? What if it's not true, you know? And, and, And so, you know, you're feeling that you need more knowledge. Your lack of knowledge is causing uncertainty and hesitation and if I could just feed my mind with facts, that would help. Yes, that's what I need to do. When you're facing intellectual doubt, you, I, you, you need to be nourished with knowledge, with truth. You do. Uh, so, listen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is based on five irrefutable facts. They're irrefutable. Fact number one, Jesus died on a cross. That's a fact. It's a fact. A fact which, uh, which we must rest. Our faith on and uh, and respectfully but firmly disagree with the faith of Islam, which does not teach that Christ died of crucifixion. See, but the Gospels say otherwise. History outside the Gospels say otherwise. Jesus died on the cross. Fact number one. Fact number two, the disciples saw where Jesus' body was placed. They saw the tomb where the body rested, that's irrefutable. Eyewitness testimony. Fact number three, on the third day, the tomb was, in fact, empty. Empty. That's irrefutable. Fact number four, multiple reports of seeing Jesus took place, Jesus alive, took place uh, over a period of 40 days By as many as 500 people at one time. That's a fact. And the fifth fact is changed lives. Changed lives. You can't argue. The changed lives of those who'd seen Christ. So those facts are not going to go away. So if you're feeling intellectual doubts about the truth of your faith, feed your mind with those kinds of facts. And you'll move from doubt to even stronger faith but that's that's not always why people doubt sometimes we doubt sometimes we doubt just not for intellectual reasons sometimes we doubt because we're feeling emotionally weak sometimes our doubt comes out of depression or psychological or mental illness and we need to listen to that we need to take that seriously Sometimes we doubt because of a tragedy or because of suffering. Or sometimes we doubt because we've had a horrible and dysfunctional upbringing and the notion of God as heavenly father means absolutely nothing to us because our earthly father was perhaps abusive. Sometimes we doubt because we're just plain, flat, exhausted physically. Sometimes, sometimes we doubt because we didn't get our nap. Hmm? And we need food, and we need rest. Sometimes we doubt because of a hundred little unwise decisions. A person begins their adult life active in church. He prays, reads his Bible, gets involved in a small group, goes on a missions trip, and then something happens. Something happens. Not sure when, not sure exactly what, but then Bible reading kind of dries up, and then prayer gets spotty, and then there's a loss of connection at church, and then this same person finds a co-worker at the office that's more fascinating than trying to work out his own challenges in his own marriage, and a year later, he ends up spending the night with someone he had no business spending the night with, and as he's in the washroom, he looks in the mirror, and he says, I never believed that Christianity stuff to begin with. Now, what happened? What happened? What happened? Was there new evidence on the History Channel? Is that what happened? No. No, what happened was a hundred small, unwise decisions resulting in a lifestyle that now makes faith in Christ inconvenient. And so there's doubt. Here's why Asaph doubted. Asaph doubted because he'd been studying God's word and what he saw in God's word didn't seem to line up with what he was experiencing in life. That's why he doubted. Asaph doubted because he he saw godless people doing well and he couldn't explain why they were prospering. Asaph doubted because on the one hand, he believed that God was good to those who are pure in heart. But on the other hand, he saw in real life, arrogant people, proud people, people who questioned God's abilities. Verse 11, how can God know? He saw these very same people winding up extremely prosperous. And at verse 4, they're not hurting for they have no pangs until death. Uh, Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a compliment back then. Uh, They're not in trouble, verse 5. Not in trouble as others are. Not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, They're conceited and and big-headed, verses 6 and 7. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. Verse 9 says their tongues strut throughout the earth. What a word picture. Asaph sees all of this and he says, what gives? What's going on here? And then, you know, he's thinking, you know, my, you know, my righteous life, what's that been worth? It's, it's in vain. Verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Oh. It's really troubling him. He's, he, he has exhausted himself trying to figure it out. You know, he's been thinking about God's word. He's seeing what goes on in God's world. And he's beginning to second guess his own life. And, and he's grown weary of that. It's, been, it's mentally exhausting. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I mean, can you identify with this? Sometimes, you know, when we doubt because what we you know what we what, what we hear in here, we go out there and it's man, it's not lining up. Doesn't seem to match what God's Word says. And we begin to second guess, we begin to waver, our feet begin to slip, we kind of start having debates with ourselves, we're standing in two places. Why don't we know what if the life I've been given is really just a farce? What if Christianity isn't true? You know, here I've, here I've given myself to a vocation of service to God. That's Asaph. I mean, he's a minister in the tabernacle. Here I've given myself to a vocation of service to God uh, to ministry. And what if it's all for nothing? What if it's all just a fantasy? What if Jesus is just a human and that's it? What if, what if Christianity is just a house of cards and there's a smoking gun document waiting to be found that'll just tear it all down? What if Dan Brown's fictional Da Vinci Code isn't fiction? Huh? You know, you think, well, I've given my life, I've given my education, I've given my energies. For what? For what? Asaph is experiencing an identity crisis, an identity quake. And, you know, for someone like me, I mean, what the temptation would be, okay, all right, okay, breathe. Okay, I'm 52. If I push the vocational reset button like now, then maybe in three to five years, I can do something else for a living and eke out an existence for the rest of my life. And, you know, maybe, see, wow, oh, our mind starts wandering and fantasizing and, Our faith gets choked. Asaph was apparently living in a world where he was surrounded by people who didn't share his beliefs and didn't believe his faith. He was an island surrounded by an ocean of oppression and his doubt caused him to be tempted towards cynicism. We'd all like to think that we're immune from that kind of stuff. But we're not. We're not immune. There's a place there's, I, I'll bet this is true for all of us. There is a place in your life where just being in that place causes doubt and uncertainty. And suddenly the energy of Sunday worship and the, the energy of our church family and the energy of studying God's word and community, that energy is gone. And before you know it, in that place, you start second-guessing Christianity. It's not that you'll feel that Christianity is wrong. It's that you'll feel it's just irrelevant. It's irrelevant. And you start feeling, was it even real? All of a sudden you find yourself doubting things you never thought you'd doubt. You know, it's not that God is like wrong. It's just like he doesn't seem to matter. Why am I so committed? Why, Why don't I go with them? God, you're answering everybody else's prayers. Why not mine? I've been praying for my children, my neighbors, my job. What's the use? No wonder verse 16 says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Huh. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Well, now what? What? Well, as my mom often says, tell me some good news. Okay? You want some good news? Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's the good news. It just gets better from here on out. Until I went to the sanctuary of God. That, that takes us to our third question. Huh. What's God want us to do with our doubts? Enter the sanctuary, enter into his presence. God wants us to bring our doubts, God wants us to bring ourselves to him in his sanctuary, for there we will see the world as it really is. The sanctuary is a lens through which we see the world as it really is. See, the reason why he was doubting, the reason why he was uncertain, the reason why he was hesitating is because he wasn't looking at life through the lens of God's presence. But then he entered the sanctuary. He went, what is the sanctuary? That's the tabernacle. That's the meeting place. The meeting place between God and his people. He went to worship. He worshiped within the community of God's people. But it's but not that he's just kind of showing up to a worship service to perform some mindless religious rites. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he went into the presence of God because in the presence of God he saw life how it really was and he saw the godless as they really were. From inside the sanctuary he looked out and saw reality. And, and so if you, listen, if you have been to a place where it has fostered doubt. Then God's word is saying, "Go to the place that nourishes your faith, the sanctuary, the very presence of God, because there you can see." And He saw. I discerned their end. I saw their end. I. I. I and and. He learned that they were the ones on slippery ground. I thought I was the one on slippery ground. No. They're the ones. All they've accumulated, everything they've worked for and saved and amassed, it can all collapse in a moment. In fact, it's going to collapse. Verse 20 says that the godless are like this dream that collapses. Think inception. The sleeper begins to awaken. The dream collapses. God, when you awaken, the wicked are like a dream that just vanishes. Wow. That's, that's how slippery they are. Asaph found himself in a place where God was less real, which caused his doubts, and the answer was to go to a place where God is more real and, and where he is worshipped as real and where he is taught as real. The sanctuary, the gathering place of God's people. And, and listen, the point the point is not if you go into the sanctuary, you'll have all of your doubts answered. That's not the point. The point is in the sanctuary, you're in the presence of God. And the presence of God is more valuable than all of your doubts. That's what Job learned. Job never, ever learned what we know in Job 1 and 2. He's never given that information. But at the end of his story, it didn't matter why. I didn't get all my answers. That doesn't matter. Why? Because I have you, Lord. I have you. If you have doubts about God, come to God. Come to where God is worshipped. Come to where God is taught. Come to where prayer happens. Do you have doubts about God? God says, then come to me. You know, think about yourself. How would you like it if someone had doubts about the kind of person you, you were? What would you want? Come to me, right? You have doubts. I have doubts about Randy. What is he really like? Really? Well, come to me. Let's have coffee. Let's talk. Let's visit. Well, how much truer is that about God? And and in his presence, it's safe. We can be honest with him as Asaph was honest with him. Verses 21 and 22, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Asaph confesses, God, I I was like an animal to you. I said some things I shouldn't have said. I was like a rescued kitten that bit the hand of the rescuer. And why was I so brutish? Why? Oh, here's yet another reason why some people doubt. Listen, listen. Why was he so brutish? Because Asaph finally confesses. He says, because I envied the arrogant. Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph was willing to admit his not-so-pure motives. (laughs) So doubt for Asaph was not just something intellectual. It was something spiritual, you know, willful. You know, I envied the arrogant. I wanted what they had. Let's see, Thomas Nagel is uh, an American philosopher. He's professor of philosophy and law at New York University, and um, uh, an and atheist. And but this is what he says: I appreciate his honesty. He wrote in uh, his book, "The Last Word." I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It's not just that I don't believe in God. I don't want there to be God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Why would he say that? Because, Because he knows that, you know, if he truly believed that God existed, he'd be accountable to that God. I don't want that, he says. Wow, I appreciate that honesty. Asaph went to where he could be honest. He went to a place where he could think, too. I thought I was on slippery ground. No, they are. They are. What's that mean? Well, it means that the life that they're living is based on a knowledge of God. That is, they're assuming there either is no God or there's a God who's not going to judge them. Either God isn't there or God doesn't care. And they can't prove that. What do you call that? Faith. Faith. Listen, listen, you cannot prove God with 100% certainty and you can't prove there is no God with 100% certainty. But just because you don't have 100% certainty doesn't mean you can't know. I know my mother loves me. I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. But I can't prove that my mother loves me in the way that I can prove 2 plus 2 is 4. But I still know she loves me. And I still know she loves me more than she loves my brothers. I know that. (laughs) And you don't have to ask her, just believe me. Here's a good question: listen, how do you know with 100% certainty that knowledge is based on 100% certainty? You can't, it's faith. So whether you're a Christian or not, you live by faith, see? And Christian faith, biblical faith, is never, ever a blind leap in the dark. It's not. Christian faith, biblical faith, is always a decision based on evidence. And Asaph cries, God, the evidence leads me to lean on you and trust you and desire you for you are my portion. You are my portion. God, the stuff can be lost in a moment. It can collapse in a moment like a dream. But who shall separate us from the love of God? And so the psalmist concludes in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? You know, so if, I, so if I leave God, where, where am I going to go? <laughs> Jesus once asked the 12, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter spoke. He said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? <laughs> and no one else is offering eternal life. No one else is offering grace. No one else is willing to, to, to receive us into glory. No one else is willing to offer me their right hand. And God, if I leave you, then if I leave you, then I'm just going to go out and I'm going to get beaten and bruised and hurt. And then after a few years of that, then you know I'll just be back. You know I'll just be back. So how about if I just not leave and save myself the bruises? So the psalmist says in verse 26, My my flesh and my heart may fail, but God's my strength. But God is the strength of my heart. And he's my portion forever. You know, all his life, Jesus was never beastly to his father. He loved his father. Jesus deserved to have God hold his hand. But on the cross, Jesus received what you and I deserve. And, And when he was on the cross, he prayed. God, why have you abandoned me? Father, I cannot feel your hand. And, and we live on the other side of Easter, don't we? We have a bigger view of God, even than Asaph did, that God would come to earth in human flesh. We have a bigger and more loving view. How much more should we be able to have a large view of God? To be able to say, To be able to say, Who have I? in heaven, but you. You're my portion forever. It is good, it is good, it is good to be near God. This past week, um, on Tuesday, I um, officiated over the memorial service, the celebration of life service of our dear sister in Christ, Karen Dillow. And um, there was a time of remembrance in that service and someone stood um, and shared just a beautiful, beautiful uh, sentence about Karen. And I heard it and I've not forgotten it. I don't think I will. And here it is. Karen was a woman who could bring you into the presence of God. I heard that. I said, I want that. I want that in my life. She was a woman who could bring you into the presence of God. She she was a sanctuary to that person who shared that, you see. And listen, that's our mission. Our mission is, see, the sanctuary is the tabernacle in David's day. Who's the sanctuary now? You are. We are. We're the, we are the temple of the living God where Jesus, having died and risen and is now enthroned and has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts and lives, and together we make up a living temple, a temple of living stones, a temple where people come and they, where they come inside this and they can see life. And I'm not talking about the drywall. I'm not talking about the carpet. I'm talking about your heart and your life. And when God's people gather, people come into that presence, people meet God in the presence of his temple. And we are that temple filled with the Holy Spirit. And people say, having been with us, God is good. God is good. God is good.